Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap. As always, I'm Nika Spaulding, and today we are continuing on in our section where God is ramping up his words to the Israelites through Amos. And so today we are continuing chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 11 through the end of the chapter 15. Amos chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I am unashamedly in love with LeBron James. Like, I've been his biggest fan. And I think part of what makes it that way is we're actually the same age. So when I was a junior in high school, he was a junior. When I was a senior, he was a senior. So I remember as an athlete myself being so enamored with someone my age who was good enough to have their teams featured on ESPN. Like I remember watching highlights of LeBron James when he was 17 years old and I was 17 years old. And I was like, what? Check out this vertical. And then watching King James fly through the air. So that being said... He's going to be my example today just because I wanted the opportunity to declare my undying love for him and fandom for him. But we have just been looking at Amos 3, where we have transitioned out of, we talked about we transitioned away from this formal introduction, accusation, judgment sequence, and now God is ratcheting up his language. So last time we talked about it being a little bit of a rap battle, and this time God God is declaring that there is something immediate and harsh coming your way. And I liken it a little bit to imagine if I came to LeBron James, all five foot seven of me, who's no longer in her prime, six foot eight LeBron James, who can still carry a team to the finals every year when he's healthy. And I come to him and I'm like, hey, bro, I am going to dunk on you. Not only am I going to dunk on you, I'm going to prevent you from dunking on me. It would be laughable. Right. It, it would be incredibly laughable because you just look at the situation. LeBron is still killing it at 34 years old. He is an unbelievable athlete, and there are no signs of him slowing down. I know people are going to talk about the groin injury. I'm pretending that didn't happen. The reality is, is he is in his prime, and it's an absurd idea to think that I'd be able to dunk on him or prevent him from dunking on me. That's got to be a little bit of what the Israelites are feeling when Amos comes to them. And he says, hey, look, an adversary is going to surround you and plunder your strongholds. Because remember, we are in the middle of Jeroboam II's reign. Though he is not the coolest dude on the block, he is not a good guy. They are in a season of prosperity. It's part of why I think God has to be so provocative in his language to them. Is because remember, they're... They're the LeBron J. Well, that makes him sound evil. LeBron is wonderful and good. My point being, they're in their prime. So the idea of this little farmer guy, Amos, coming up from Tekoa and saying, hey guys, your strongholds are going to be plundered, is going to be laughable to the Israelites. 
And yet, that's exactly what God is saying. You think you're in your prime. And I'm telling you, there's somebody else who's going to come and plunder your strongholds. That They are going to take you down and they're going to take your defenses from you. Because right now they're thinking we're the baddest kids on the block. And so we continue to see in this chapter that God is ratcheting up the language. He goes on as he talks to them and he says to them, I will punish you for your transgressions. Specifically, I will punish the altars of Bethel. Why does he talk about this? Well, there were a couple of places in the northern kingdom where they would do their sacrifices. Now, we've talked about it before, but just a reminder, the sacrifices should only be done in Jerusalem, which is in the south. God has established his temple. He has given very specific instructions on how to go about doing the sacrifices. And God don't play when it comes to his sacrificial system. So much so that we have stories in the Old Testament when people do not do it the way that he tells them to. And he's like, no, 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 no. That ain't going to fly, bro. And they get taken out. He is incredibly adamant that they worship him in the way that he prescribes. Why? Because, again, you become what you worship. And if you choose the parameters upon which you worship God, you're actually just worshiping this imagination of God. God himself is like, would you like to worship me? Yes, I would like to. Okay, A, B, and C. That's how you do it. And if we're like, yeah, 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 can we do G, F, and Z? He's like, I, I don't think it's then that you want to actually worship me. I think you want to worship something, but I don't think it's me. That's what we have going on here. It's why he specifically calls out the altars of Bethel. Because when the country split in half, when the first Jeroboam was like, I'm going to take my ball and go home and split the country in half, we end up with different sites of sacrifice and worship. This should have never been. Th- this should have never been. Not only that, we know that this Jeroboam sets up a golden calf at the altar of Bethel. This is getting personal. God's like, hey, Amos, you go tell them that I'm going to plunder their strongholds. You tell them that that army that they think is so big and bad, it's going to go down. And then you let them know specifically. You let little JJ Jeroboam know, I'm taking his altar down. I'm cutting off the horns of the calf that he put up on the altar. This is getting personal. This is getting ratcheted up. And the language is continuing to amplify in these passages. I have warned you. I have warned you. I have warned you. And now I'm going to get very specific about what I'm going to do. And part of that specificity is that place of worship, which can only be a place of idolatry. Because if you were truly worshiping me, you'd be in Jerusalem. So all that idolatrous worship that you're doing at Bethel with that golden calf, which by the way, I'm not too keen on golden calves. Remember that I am a living God that you are supposed to worship, not some created handmade, man-made thing that you can think you can control and manipulate and, and bring your kind of worship to. So I am going to go and tear that down specifically. Jeroboam, I'm coming for the horns of your little calf. It's very personal. It's very specific. And then he goes from preaching to meddling. You know what I'm saying? Like he gets real specific and he starts addressing the rich. You know how he's addressing the rich? Because the poor don't have winter homes and summer homes. They don't have homes made of ivory. So remember, the transgressions against Israel, you forsake the poor, you trample the poor, you sell the righteous for silver, you push people down, though you were once down. 
God has told them, turn back and repent. They haven't heeded the warning, and now the accusations are climbing. It went from this rap battle last time to letting you know the lion has roared in Zion. You should heed his call to now we're getting very specific about what God's going to do. And right in the middle of this passage where he says, you will be plundered and I'm coming for Bethel. And all of that is this really interesting part where he says, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth, the lion of two legs or a piece of an ear or whatever, so will it be in Israel. You will be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. And so it might sound like, okay, well, at least we'll have the corner of the couch and part of the bed. Like it sounds like mm, maybe a little bit spare. Let me explain to you what's going on here. Shepherds were sometimes hired out. Sometimes you were a shepherd of your own sheep, but sometimes shepherds were hired hands. And because of that, you were you were in control of someone else's livestock and really their livelihood. Because think about it, in, in this ancient world, if your livelihood is your goats or your sheep or whatever, and you're paying somebody to watch them, then you're also trusting them to take care of your money, your livelihood, your, your work. So shepherds sometimes, especially once Jesus' day rolls around, shepherds can actually sometimes be a little bit seedy. And so a shepherd could come to an owner and say, hey man, your sheep died. Uh, nothing I can do about it. Sorry about it. Win some, lose some. But what he might actually be doing is selling off that sheep and pocketing the profits. So in order for a shepherd to prove, hey, I did my best. I fought off that bear, that wolf, that whatever was coming for it. I did, I did my best, but unfortunately we did lose sheep because that happens. What he'll do is he'll take part of the animal away from whatever the predator, so an ear, a leg, or whatever, and brings that bloody piece of the carcass back to the owner to say, look, here is the proof of death. You, your sheep did not survive. This isn't some sort of, hey, your sheep is actually in my pen and I'm trying to pull a fast one on you. The corner of the ear, the piece of the leg, the whatever is proof of death. This is a dreary picture. Because he's saying, hey, in the same way that a shepherd brings out this bloodied piece of carcass to prove that this animal, this sheep, is in fact dead, Israel, the corner of your bed and your couch and all of that is going to be the proof that you are in fact dead. I mean, this is heavy stuff, right? It, it would be... It would be a misunderstanding of my character if I made this a bigger joke when, in fact, this is what happened. That God has been warning them and warning them and warning them, and now he ratchets it up to language to say, you remember those bloody carcasses of sheeps and how there's nothing left except proof of death? That's what's coming for you. I'm going to come take out your altars, and I'm going to do all of this because of your transgressions. It's getting personal. The language is getting ratcheted up, and God is not playing any longer with their iniquity. So what do we do with this? Right? This is, if I were just to come to you and say, I want to tell you what the Father is like. And you're like, okay. And I'm like, hey, pull up a chair. Let's chat. And I opened up to this part of Amos. I'm like, oh, okay. Hey, there's these people, and uh, they weren't obeying. And so then the Father's like, hey, listen. In the same way that sheep sometimes gets chewed up by lions and is left for dead, I'm going to do that to you. Um, you know those strongholds and those defenses that you trust in? Yeah, I'm going to take them down. Oh, and by the way, you remember that altar that you've been worshiping at? Yeah, I'm going to personally destroy it. So, okay, kids, what did we learn about the Father? Can we describe the Father? 
And truly, this is what I think sometimes as pastors, we talk about the image of God a lot. And what we mean by that is what comes to mind when you think of God. And this is something that theologians Tozier and others have talked about. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about you've heard people talk about this. And I think what can happen is depending on what part of the church that you're from, we tend to have a favorite member of the Trinity, which is truly ludicrous if you understand the Trinity because they don't play favorites within themselves. They constantly exist in self-donating, loving relationship. But this can happen. And what I see happen is because we don't have a full picture of the way Scripture works and because sometimes we don't have a full understanding of what God is doing in those passages, we tend to, I'll just speak for the places that I've been in, we get a little bit weirded out by the Holy Spirit because he's the one that gives gifts, but he also does some other things that we don't really understand. And depending on which camp you're in, you're not really sure if you think he can or can't do these things. Then we've got Jesus. And we're so grateful for Jesus because that guy's our homeboy. We don't mind putting him on t-shirts and putting him in artwork and all of that. But the father, the father's got an anger, anger problem. And thank God, thank the father that he sent the son to make it okay to come to the father. And that is truly a misunderstanding of the Trinity. First of all, they're united. What you see in Christ, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, who Christ is in his essence and his character and his personality shares with the Father and the Spirit. They are one while also being, they are eternally one essence, three persons. So what we see in Jesus is is who the Father is. So what do we do with these passages? Well, one of the things that I've set about to do in my personal studying of scripture is I have just a couple of rules that I live by. And, and what I mean by that is I just have these parameters. So think about you driving up on a steep road. You, you, you want those rails on the side. So that way your car doesn't careen off the side of the mountain. You want these things as you're climbing to the pinnacle of scripture and you're trying to understand it, it's difficult. It's hard. Sometimes you have to put it in four low and go slowly because some passages are difficult to understand. And so because of that, I have these rules of, of interpretation. And the first one is this, is that God is good and God does good. And we get this from the psalmist, but we also see it throughout scripture that who God is and what God does, that is that is the essence of God's personality. So God not only is love, he is loving. Not, God not only is kindness embodied, he expresses kindness as well. And so what I mean by that is God is goodness in his essence, in his personality, he is good, and he also does good. He cannot violate that. Everything that God does is good because he is goodness. So that's rule number one. God is good and God does good. The second one is this, is that God loves me no matter what. And the third one is that God is pleased with me. And those are for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The blood of Christ is sufficient for everything so that there are consequences for our sin, natural ones that come about. But eternally, we are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. We are are good. God is good and God does good. God loves me no matter what and God is pleased with me. And these are the things that I take, these principles, and I smash them on top of scripture. I put them right on top. And if my interpretation of a passage violates any one of those three things, then it's on me to continue to dig deeper to find out how is this goodness. So when you get to a passage like today's, chapter 3 of Amos, 11 through 15, and you're like, man, I think I can see that this is good. Help me lean into that a little bit more. This is what I'd say. Could it be really harsh that God is tearing down these altars and he's He's comparing you to a dead carcass sheep? Yeah. Yeah. It could be. But what if you were headed for destruction anyways? 
What if what God is trying to do is warn you so that you don't careen off the road? What if you've built for yourself a world of idolatrous worship that is literally rotting you from the inside out, as well as rotting your community? What if he's trying to prevent you from losing your soul in the midst of you bullying and treating harshly and abusing people around you? So let me give you an example. What if I told you I came into your house last night and I smashed up every one of your glasses and all your cabinets and everything else? And you came in and all you saw was me with a huge sledgehammer and your kitchen is like (laughs) just in shambles. And I'd be like, this was for your own good. And you'd be like, hmm, feels a little extreme. Not sure how it's good. But what if then you knew the backstory? Listen, you've been drinking yourself into a coma. Your liver is spotty. You're on your way to a certain death. I needed to go to extreme circumstances to wake you up. And that includes breaking your glasses and your liquor cabinet and whatever other things were triggers for you. It all went down. I tore it to the ground. It's extreme, but it's because I love you. It's extreme, but it's because nothing else was working. It was extreme, but it's because I came to your house multiple times and I kept trying to warn you and warn you and warn you. And you just wouldn't listen. The extremeness we see in this passage is because of God's goodness. It's because he knows if he leaves Israel to continue, it will only lead to their greater destruction and destruction of those around them. We always have to remember that God acts in accordance to his character, and his character cannot violate that he is loving, merciful, just, and good at all times. So though this might seem harsh to us, because sometimes we're like, man, isn't there a better way? Whatever way God's doing, that's the good way. Because he is good and he does good. This is a severe mercy that God is offering to the people of Israel. And so here's my challenge for you today. Sometimes the things that God does in our life are confusing. They're difficult to understand and they just feel severe. They don't feel like a severe mercy. And so my challenge to you is to ask God to show you where he has dealt mercifully with you in ways that maybe you don't understand and ask him to show you how he is always good towards you, no matter what. Thanks for tuning in, friends. If nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. Way more importantly, God is crazy about you. Peace.